you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Mike, it's my joy to serve as one of the pastors here at Sydney Hill, Brisbane. Um, hey, a couple of things uh, just before we start. Mel, uh, thank you for, for, um, for getting up and explaining us a bit about the women's pastoral care team, or the pastoral care team. You might be thinking, um, you know, gender equality, what about the men? Men don't need any help. She'll be right, is what they say. Well, well, actually, well a couple of things. Um, one, actually, yeah, men, men actually don't ask for help as much. Um, so there's actually less of a need because we're not putting a hand up. So that's just an encouragement to... to um, yeah, it's okay not to be okay. So let's be putting our hands up, men. Also, as well, um, uh, conscious the staff team is um, more at, like Zach and I full time. Um, you know, Lisa and and Mel part time. We've got more sort of hours, elders as well. We've got we've got more, I guess, resource to be able to uh, not just necessarily do all the pastoral care, but sort of help um, equip the other men and that kind of thing. But we are still looking to build um, and grow our men's pastoral care 
uh, kind of team and resources as well. But as, as, um, as Kirsty and Mel said, primarily our pastoral care does happen through our gospel community groups. So I'd love to chat with you uh, if you'd like to be part of them or if um, you've got thoughts about how pastoral care is working out in that group. Uh, hey, second thing, um, we're kicking off, or not, well, we're gonna, we do this a few times a year. We're going to be doing our next marriage course uh, in a few weeks' time. Uh, in June, the three non-consecutive Thursday nights in June, they're the dates. Uh, if you're recently married or if you're engaged or maybe you're kind of, it's on the horizon, not too far away, um, love you to, to consider coming along. Uh, it'll be over three Thursday nights at, at Sarah and I's place, my place, um, and over dessert. And also there'll be some older couples as well that can provide lots more wisdom uh, than Sarah I, and I can as well. So it'd be a great chance to, to think about what the Bible has to say about marriage and practically kind of wrestling with some uh, some fun topics. So I'd love to see you guys there. We had four couples there last time. It was a great time. One couple was dating. Now they're engaged. So I'm going to claim that as success. So um, <laughs> um, it's great. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray again and ask uh, God's help for us this morning. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you have spoken and continue to speak through it. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for our time together this morning. I do pray that we would behold the glory of the gospel. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus more clearly as a result of this morning. And I pray that this wouldn't just be information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts. And help us as a church, as a family of brothers and sisters, wrestle with these truths together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what would it take you to continue in the faith 20, 30 years' time. What will it take you to keep going as a Christian? Now, I've been a Christian less than 20 years, but over that time I've seen people, sadly, walk away, or perhaps better describe, drift away from Jesus. And, you know, it's not just people that are sort of on the edge, people that maybe it's less surprising because they're sort of hardly here anyway. No, in fact, an old youth pastor of mine, in fact, he was probably one of the best Bible study leaders I've ever had. They used to call him the walking Bible. He just kind of downloaded it. He just knew, and he knew how to teach it well. And he sadly no longer is trusting Jesus. The, the president of the Christian group that I was part of at uni, where I became a Christian, he's drifted away from the things of Jesus. Uh, there's at least a dozen people I've led on, on various kind of youth high school camps over the years. Sadly, leaders of camp, sadly, no longer trusting Jesus. Even family members as well that I pray with, no longer trusting Jesus. And if you've been around for a little while as well, um, but there's some empty seats in the room. That's a helpful visual, actually. There's people, maybe not necessarily this many empty seats, but, but there's people that, that were coming here at City on a Hill, like yourself, that are no longer trusting Jesus. And we're a relatively young church. I've only been going seven years. You know, it's uh, not often is someone just moved from a zealous Jesus lover one day to kind of an you know, activist atheist the next. More often it is this slow drift. Uh, you know, you keep kind of maybe showing up for a while, but then you're sort of just going through the motions. Um, then excuses sort of get in the way with your time with God or, or time together with his people. Um, you, maybe you consider looking for another church that sort of better suits your needs to kind of where you're at at the moment. But, you know, me and God, we're still sweet. We're good. You know, maybe you go along to that new church. Maybe you don't. Maybe work gets in the way. You get busy. Your new girlfriend, she's super supportive 
But she doesn't actually have Jesus Lord of her life. Family stuff, relationships, kids' sport, weekends away. Uh, these priorities, they, they start to drift. And God, he doesn't seem quite as real anymore. You know, the, the, the zealous faith you had as a young adult, it's not quite the same. Yeah, you've still got your Christian friends and, and they're nice people. And that was a really good and special and important time for you. But it's not what you need right now. Church, life can be hard and the Christian life has its own particular set of challenges. There are many reasons we could allow ourselves to drift away from God and his people. It's easy to be discouraged. The message that I'm going to share with you this morning from 2 Corinthians 4 isn't spectacular. You know, I don't promise inspirational words that you can inject into your veins and your faith will just kind of go on this upward spiral, upward curve. The big thing that I want to say to us this morning is this, and it's somewhat mundane. The gospel is enough, so keep going. We're going through uh, this series, we're not quite halfway through, we're a third of the way through the series, uh, looking at this letter of two Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to this church that he, that he dearly loves, yet this church in Corinth, it's a, uh, it's a big city, a cosmopolitan city, a major trading port. Uh, it's the, the church of Corinth has this pull, a pull towards the world. Um, and also from persecution as well. Now, Corinth, it was a large, you know, big city, right? And, and the church was in danger of not looking like a city on a hill, but in fact, like the city itself. Paul writes this chapter in particular to urge them to keep going. If you have a look at the first word, if you open up your Bibles, have the first word of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's this, therefore. Uh, it's important. My English teacher taught me this. When you say therefore, what's it there for? And really any document you can say that for, but especially of the Bible, what's the context? What's Paul just been saying? Well, um, last week we saw in chapter 3 that Paul and the church, that, that's us, um, have been given access to God in a glorious new way. We have better access than even Moses did uh, because of Jesus. Uh, we're in this, this era called the New Covenant. We've been given access to new and better promises through Jesus. We're not under this ministry of death and condemnation, but this ministry of the Spirit. We have God's personal presence in our lives if we are followers of Jesus. And he says, because what God has given him, because of this ministry of the gospel, of righteousness, we see in chapter 3, this glory of this new covenant We're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But because of this, he says, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And then again in verse 16, he'll echo this same phrase, we do not lose heart. Now he's bookending this section, trying to hammer this point down to, to encourage his beloved church that he spent more time with than any other church to keep on going. And so his point is this. Two points. The gospel is enough, so keep going. Firstly, the gospel is enough. Verse 1, I'll read it again. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The ministry that, that Paul and we have, it's all by the mercy of God. It's all by his kindness. Mercy is uh, when you 
when you deserve something, but it's taken away. You, you actually don't get the punishment you deserve. It, it's, it's a favor. It's a kindness. It's a forgiveness. You know, Paul, he didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve to be a Christian, let alone a great leader who wrote half the New Testament. See, prior to becoming a Christian, Paul was basically a religious terrorist trying to stop Christians, trying to stop Jesus' message being spread. And yet God, by his grace and kindness, changed his life. Uh, And we, likewise, we might not have been religious terrorists, but we don't deserve God's kindness. Uh, We didn't earn our way into his favor, into his plans and purposes, but God has graciously called us, swept us up into what he is doing for his glory. And because it's about him, we don't lose heart. This ministry, this new covenant gospel, it's glorious. And yet sometimes we think, we're tempted to think that it's not enough. You know, sometimes we think that, oh, look, maybe if I just sort of take a little bit extra and add to the gospel, or maybe just kind of take some things away, uh, then actually it'll be better. Like I'll be, I'll be a better Christian. It'll be more accessible to others, that kind of thing. I remember when I was about 20, um, his confession time, I, my old church, uh, we had this event called Grill a Pastor, you know, a bit of a palm, kind of a barbecue thing where the pastor would kind of give a short talk. And I had a mate uh, who was very, uh, very skeptical, atheist mate from, from school. And um, I, I said, hey, there's a barbecue coming. I'd love you to come. And he's like, all right, I'll come. That's all I told him. I didn't tell him this gorilla pastor thing. I didn't tell him there was going to be a Bible talk and Q&A, that kind of stuff. I just, he came, so he came to the barbecue and then suddenly, all right, this, my old pastor Matt, he just kind of starts talking and he just gets a bit uncomfortable. I did the bait and switch thing. I was deceptive. I was a bit ashamed of the gospel. Frankly, I probably didn't think it was enough. Check out what Paul says to this in verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's saying he's renounced. Uh, He's standing against methods that are contrary to both the message and the means of the gospel. See, unlike the impressive speakers of of Paul's day in Corinth, these orators, these sophists, these super apostles that would come in and win people, impress people with their sort of TEDx-style talks, um, Paul is just preaching the the plain vanilla gospel. God is his witness, he says, and this is all I am doing. There's temptations, I think, for, for churches and for Christians today you know, to be try to fit in, try to be relevant, to use gimmicks uh, and things to kind of draw a crowd. Uh, remember, um, my wife Sarah, she at youth group. Uh, there was this thing where whoever invited the most friends could win an iPod. And Sarah, um, you can ask her about this. She uh, she kind of grabbed some friends at the door, and there you go. She won the iPod. So there you go. Um, now there's uh, you know there's a, f- a few more subtle ways perhaps um, that we could do to um, you know to maybe be a little bit like trying to be like the world, trying to fit in. Uh, maybe we, we're tempted to sort of avoid kind of certain passages or uh, certain doctrines, truths of the Bible because they're a bit more jarring to today's climate. Now, you can understand this. I mean, back in the day, 60 years ago, uh, the Bible's values sort of lined up with the culture, especially in Australia. Now, to be a Christian was almost seen like a good thing. You're a good Christian. That, that was a, a virtue in our society. But 
now our morals, they're not just kind of weird, irrelevant, outdated. Uh, we've sort of moved to this era where they're, 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 criti- they're, they're critiqued, they're seen as offensive, they're seen as exclusive and even hateful. And so there can be a temptation to, to tamper with the word, to soften it. Maybe only talk about certain issues that kind of line up with the cultural flavor of the day. Or maybe to tamper with the gospel itself to change the meaning, the focus of what Christianity is really on about. Now, there's a few ways you can do this. I think there's a couple that have sort of going, been going around for I don't know, the past little while. First is the, the prosperity gospel. Jesus came to, this is the idea that Jesus came to make your life prosperous, to make your life better, healthy, wealthy, and wise if you come and follow Jesus. He'll, he'll make you wonderful and, and rich, successful. And secondly, the, the social gospel. Uh, that Jesus came primarily to bring about this social change. And the main task of Christians, their great mission is to improve social conditions so we can bring upon more progress. If you add anything to the gospel, then it no longer becomes the gospel. Now, the problem with both these two gospels, prosperity and social, while, yes, there is, there is some truth in what they are on about, yes, Jesus does want to make you better and, and society as well, but it's on his terms and his timeline. His terms and his timeline, which ultimately Jesus' timeline is eternity in heaven. And we'll see this as Paul unpacks in the following verses. But there's also another temptation, and maybe this one is more relevant for us, maybe to present either ourselves or our church as, as more impressive than we actually are. You know, the, the digital age we live in, we, many of us live our lives online, uh, of course, social media, etc. But in that, what sort of image are we creating for ourselves? You know, how do people know us through that lens? But more importantly, how are we glorifying God? the way we live our lives online. You know, that's corporately. You know, there's official um, social media accounts of City on a Hill Brisbane. We want to kind of be careful of what message we're sending out there. But it's also us as individuals. We, together, are the church. Now, imagine if someone, uh, not a Christian, imagine someone uh, is kind of scrolling through their phone and somehow they were able to scroll through everyone's here's social media accounts, right? This is the City on a Hill, just kind of lived out online. Now, what, what sort of image would they get? Now, what would they take away as the thing that we are on about? Uh, would we talk about Jesus? How would we talk about Jesus? Or would we talk about him at all? Would, would they see a city on the hill that seeks to point life and love into the dark corners of our, of our city through the gospel, through Jesus? Or would they see someone that's maybe a bit ashamed or maybe just trying to fit in? What would they see? Maybe a question to wrestle with in gospel community this week. But we see that Paul, his confidence is Jesus because his gospel is sufficient. And why is the gospel sufficient? Well, because God's the one at work. Keep reading with me, chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, that even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of, Christ, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel work is ultimately spiritual work. Gospel work is spiritual work. 
You know, sometimes we think, and I think this sometimes, that if we can just present someone, uh, it's not a Christian, just the evidence, the kind of logical evidence, the historical evidence for the resurrection, uh, you know, kind of arguments, the fine-tuning argument, the cosmological argument, all these kind of arguments for the existence of God, why is the most plausible way of thinking about the world, then if we can just show this, then of course they will believe. But the reason, why is the reason why people don't believe? Well, it's in this, because the gospel is veiled. It's as though people have this blindfold over their eyes, their minds. And what's going on? Well, it says here that the God of this world, that, that Satan, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, Satan clearly here has some power to blind the minds, to prevent people from seeing Jesus clearly. But he doesn't have absolute power. His power is limited under the sovereignty of God. It's not as though you know, God and, and Satan are kind of arm wrestling, kind of tussling to see, you know, is Sam going to be a Christian or not? Like, it's not a, that's not what's happening. The battle is ultimately won and God is in control. And yet Satan has a domain in this world. But, so what's going on? Well, no, notice that they are already unbelievers. They're already unbelievers. And it's not so it's though Satan kind of blindfolds those that already have their eyes closed. Yes, it is a spiritual battle. We can't reason or argue people into the kingdom of God. And that's not to say that uh, apologetics, which is just the, the discipline of defending the faith, doesn't have any value. I mean, we, we had introducing Jesus just this last week. We talked about the, the, the truth of what's written in the Bible, how it can be historically reliable. Now, we do that to help kind of knock down some barriers so that people can actually engage with the truth on its own terms. But how does God take this blindfold off? Well, he does it. His normal way of doing it is through ordinary schmucks like you and I, through preach people like us, you know, not necessarily what I'm doing now, but people like yourself sharing the gospel. But what actually is the gospel? You've talked about the gospel already, Mike. What is it? What's come up in this passage a few times? Well, think about it for a sec. If, if someone were to ask you, and maybe you've had this happen recently, how would you summarize what you believe? Like, what is it that you believe? What, what do Christians believe? Uh, how would you go about ask, answering that? You know, maybe you'd kind of start at the beginning. It's a good place to start. Start with Genesis. God created the world. It was good. Uh, however, we stuffed up, we, we rebelled, and so there's this curse, this brokenness, the Bible called sin, and so Jesus comes to fix that problem, and now there's hope. Maybe it goes something like that. Maybe you tell your own story and say, hey, look, this is what I was like before a Christian, as though I was blind, I was a fool, I was living for the world, and yet God came along, and maybe you kind of go along that way. Share your own story about God at work in your life. Well, I went to the, uh, the source of all authority, I asked ChatGPT this week, and, uh, and this is what it said. ChatGPT said that Christians believe in the one true God, the Holy Trinity, and that salvation from sin and eternal life are possible through faith in Jesus Christ, who is believed to be the Son of God and the Savior of humanity. Christians also believe in the authority of the Bible as the Word of God, the power of prayer, and the importance of living a life of love, servants, and obedience to God. Hey, it's not bad. I've had some, some play around a little bit with chat but I've had some duds, so it's definitely not a beacon of truth. And in fact, a few of us at City Hill got together. We're keen to wrestle with the dangers and maybe the opportunities as well of, of AI and ChatGPT. But I didn't spend too long uh, preparing the sermon there, just, just to clear that one up. Um, 
But, but this passage actually gives us an even sharper, more concise, hopefully more memorable summary of the gospel. It's just in four words. Four words. These four words. Jesus Christ as Lord. Everyone say that. Jesus Christ as Lord. That comes from verse 5. Now, a lot more can be said. Um, we, can, we can unpack that one for hours. I'll just do a little bit of work here. But come with me to verse 5. Let's just read this in context. This is what Paul's saying. For we proclaim, it's not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The gospel, the good news, the message that Paul and that Christians are called to herald or, or waft the aroma of Christ, it's, it's Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus is Lord. And he's contrasting it with, uh, with an alternative message, ourselves, right? We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. The sign of good gospel preaching, a good sermon, is that Jesus should be the hero, not the preacher. You should have left uh, today, hopefully, learning more about Jesus than me. If, if you haven't, then I've failed you. Now, in these four words, Jesus Christ as Lord, uh, there's a guy, theologian, Murray Harris. He says there's at least eight implications to these words. They'll pop up on the screen. Firstly, the Jesus of Nazareth, real person, he is the Christ. He's the promised king. Jesus Christ is God. He has supremacy over all things. Christ, therefore, triumphed over death and all powers through his death and resurrection. All people are accountable to him. Anyone who grasps this has grasped the Christian message. And anyone who says this has made a personal declaration of faith. And believing this repudiates all other allegiances. So a helpful way of just unpacking these four words, Jesus Christ is Lord. These truths, that they're all central to the gospel or flowing from Jesus Christ as Lord. But I think some of us here, perhaps many of us, uh, we really like and cling to the idea of Jesus as our saviour, as our friend. And that's true. That's important. But that's not primarily who he is. Jesus saves, but he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's more than our buddy. He's more than someone we can turn to when we're in time of need. Yes, he is those things, but he's more. He's Lord. Now, Lord, it's a, it's a funny word we, that sort of is a little bit, sounds a little bit archaic. Uh, we live in a pretty kind of flat, egalitarian society in, in Brisbane, in Australia. All right, hands up who watched the, the coronation last night. A few people, a few hands kind of go straight up. There you go. Um, well, uh, you know, last night, um, you know, the, the word Lord, like you kind of think, and it sort of sounds very British, sort of you can imagine some people kind of wearing robes and funny hats and things like that, kind of standing around watching this old guy become a king that doesn't really have much bearing on my life today. Sounds a little bit irrelevant. That's not the picture when it says Jesus Christ is Lord. He's our boss's 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 boss. He's the business owner. He owns our mortgage. Uh, he owns our data. He is running the show. He's the king of kings, the Bible says. Through him, all things were made. He's holding the universe together. When we looked at that in Colossians 1 last year. He will judge and destroy all those who oppose against him. Uh, he'll even 
send birds to kind of gorge on the flesh of kings that are up against him. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth in judgment. He'll be worshipped on the throne forever. That's why on earth he claims to be God. He claimed to have the authority from God. He went into the, the capital city of the most religious place in the temple. He confronted some religious leaders that were being dodgy. And what did he do? He came with a whip. He was cracking a whip, literally. He flipped the tables and told them to get out because they had defiled his father's place, turned it into a marketplace, a den of robbers. Is Jesus just your saviour and friend or is he your Lord. Keep reading in verse 6. Um, Paul will unpack how this gospel works through the lordship of Jesus. And the context um, of the Corinthian audience, it helps us understand. You know, for the Hebrew, and Paul was Hebrew, and a lot of people in Corinth were Hebrews, um, the great pursuit for them was light. You know, light symbolized God and goodness and peace. Uh, from Isaiah, the Lord is my light and salvation. Uh, but they're also a very Greek culture too. Uh, Corinth, of course, it's in modern-day Greece, and they spoke Greek. For the Greeks, the ultimate goal was knowledge. And for the Romans, their epitome, the glory was Rome. The epitome of their life was glory. Paul, he was born a Hebrew. He was a citizen of Rome, and he spoke Greek, writing to this Greek culture. He says this, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is enough because it's God who speaks through his word. We see this in Genesis 1.3. God says, let there be light. Boom. And there is. He speaks the universe into existence. God, he's in the business of, of lighting up dark places. He lit up the world, um, but he's lighting up the darkness in our hearts. See, our default status. We're in the dark. We're born blind. But it's God who shines his light and gives light to the gospel. So when, when we become a Christian, it's God He's taking off the veil, the blindfolds of the unbelievers. And how does God keep speaking powerfully today? He does still speak. He does that through his word. That's why Paul, he doesn't need to rely on motivational seminars or, or cunning practices or fancy techniques because he's got the words of God. And we do as well. It's the gospel. It's the knowledge of the glory in the face of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's where glory can be found. So we've seen the gospel. It's enough. It's simple on one level. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we've seen how it works. But also it's to be treasured. It's the power, not, with, not of us, but working within us. It's all God and not us. Look, secondly, as we unpack that a little bit more, let's keep going. The gospel is enough, so let's keep going. So Paul, he's unpacked the gospel, uh, and he'll keep doing that through this section to urge us to keep going. Let's read verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
the gospel, described as treasure in jars of clay. And in some way, uh, this is the kind of pinnacle of our series. Like, this is what our series is titled, Jars of Clay. But there's a danger, and I think Zach uh, picked this up a couple weeks ago, there's a danger in kind of misreading us. And, uh, you know, even the, the artwork can be helpful and unhelpful. You kind of look at these, um, these, these jar, you know, jars of clay, these pots with this Japanese writing on it, and you think, wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, but that actually could distract us. To help us kind of understand what's really going on here, I'm going to do something that's a little bit, a little bit risky. Uh, I'm going to take a leaf out of Oprah's book. I wouldn't do this every week. But uh, everyone, look under your seats. Well, everyone look under your seats, and one of you is going to get a prize. Everyone look under your seats, and one of you is going to get a prize, and a clue, this prize will be in a plastic bag like this. Okay, So I want everyone to look under their seats, and you're going to find a plastic bag. You might have to look deep under there. Everyone look, no, I used to work in the cinemas, and that was my first job. And, um, and uh, you, know, you, you could find all sorts of things under the seats, especially our, our job was just to kind of sweep things under the seat and then uh, kick it down the road. Here we go. We've got a winner. There you go. Nam and Yossica. Now, now, what's inside there? Can you hold that up? Can you, can you hold that up? What's there? What's there? There's some treasure. There's some golden coins. $2.25 from Kmart. There you go. Nam's a dentist, so he'll, he'll eat them responsibly, I'm sure. Um, but what's in, what, what was that all about? Well, jars of clay. Uh, Gary Miller, who wrote a commentary uh, on 2 Corinthians, he, he titled his chapter of chapter 4, um, Life as a Plastic Bag. <laughs> Life as a Plastic Bag. Um, that, was, that would have been a great series title, hey? Life as a Plastic Bag. Um, now, what's the point of this? Well, jars of clay, like they sound fancy, impressive, expensive, but really, they were just vessels that used to transport stuff, just pretty ordinary things. But what's Paul's point here is actually the treasure, the thing that's inside. Paul says in verse 7, um, the point of this is to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You know, we're not meant to kind of see the gospel and go, wow, how amazing is this? How amazing is this plastic bag? But no, it's just a vessel, the treasure. That's the thing inside. And listen to how Paul shapes his attitude. Uh, if you flick over to chapter 11, flick over a few pages to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see just a bit of uh, Paul's resume, uh, some of the things that Paul has had to endure. We're going to go through this in more detail uh, in coming weeks when we get to this chapter. But I thought I'd just help us understand Paul, to help us understand his gospel-driven perspective. He says this, verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, 39 whips. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who would want to be a Christian? We're going to look at this in more detail, as I said, but with that in mind, that's Paul's life, right? That, that's a bit of his backstory. That, that's what he's, he's doing to persevere as a Christian. 
have a look. Go back to chapter 4 and have a look at how his attitude towards this life is. I'll read from you in verse 8, chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know, he's afflicted. He's in this physical and spiritual battle. He's perplexed. He's confused. You know, this isn't really what he thought he was signing up for when he met Jesus on, on the road to Damascus. Uh, this isn't kind of how he thought maybe Christian ministry would be. He had deep friends, ministry partners, desert and even backstab him. He's persecuted both from his own people uh, that, that he came from, Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, he's struck down by the waves, physical punishment as well, illness. But what's his attitude? Well, he's got this beautiful gospel-shaped confidence just to keep on going. There's a theologian called William Barclay. He translates this passage with a bit more oomph. He says, We are sore pressed at every point, but not hemmed in. We are at our wits' end, but never at our hope's end. We are persecuted by men, but never abandoned by God. We are knocked down, but not knocked out. Does this feel like the Christian life to you sometimes? Do you sometimes feel like you're at your wits' end? Maybe you're ostracized at work. Maybe you feel like God's, God's plan for your life is not living like how you thought it would be. Maybe churches aren't meeting your expectations. Uh, maybe there's people that you love that are no longer trusting in Jesus. Maybe you've asked yourself this. Is this what I signed up for? Maybe uh, you've been a Christian for a while and you've never seen someone personally become a Christian. Despite sharing Jesus for years, decades. Does the gospel even work? How is it that Paul is able to keep going in the midst of his life? Because he's got gospel-shaped clarity and perspective. He looks to Jesus. That's why he's able to say things like, follow my example as I follow Christ. Keep reading back in chapter 2, verse 11. He says this. Um, so I'll go, I'll go back from verse 10. So uh, we're always carrying in the body the death of of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live, for we who live, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Through death, Jesus he brings life. Through death, we have eternal life. But the implications of the gospel, uh, they're even deeper than that. Becoming a Christian, it's more than just a, a transaction. It's more than just a transaction. Yes, there is a transaction, but it's a transformation. We who are separate from God are now joined together with Jesus. We are united to him in his death. Our old self is crucified. When Jesus calls us to, to follow him as his disciples, he, he says this in, in Mark 8, we're called to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow Jesus. For anyone who wants to cling to their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for the sake of me will save it. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To know Jesus, what means following him? It means denying ourselves. And so when people suffer for the name of Jesus, even if they face death and die, Jesus' glory, it's manifested. The aroma of Christ wafts. God is glorified. 
Now, for us personally, there's even better news for us as, um, as we kind of think about what it means to be joined to Jesus. There's this hope. If you keep reading in verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We have the same spirit of Jesus. Do you know that? We have the Holy Spirit dwelling with us. And if we trust in him, the same spirit, that, the power that rose Jesus from the dead will work in our lives and bring us to, to God, the Father, in glory in the resurrection. Because Jesus rose, we too can rise in glory. You know, not just back, it's not like, um, you know, you play uh, in a first-person shooter game, you get respawned. It's not like that, that you can kind of start again. No, no, we're raised to something far more glorious into the, the presence of God. But this treasure, this is a treasure. Can you see why Paul's calling it a treasure? It's not about the bag, it's what's inside. The treasure we have, it's not something that we kind of, you know, store up, cling, kind of keep in a secure bank account, you know, encrypted, that kind of thing. No, it's to be shared. It's to be shared. That's why uh, Paul, he's quoting Psalm 115. I I believed in verse 13. I believed and so I spoke. Um, In that psalm, the psalmist, uh, in his context, he's facing death, despair, destruction. And yet the refrain is just, I love God. God is good. Uh, I want to sing his praises even in the midst of suffering and sorrow. And so Paul, like the psalmist, uh, he wanted to to share this treasure, uh, that that God was good and faithful and offered salvation to the world. And that's what we should as well. If we truly do treasure this, if we truly do see that inside our jar of clay, our, our plastic bag, we have this imperishable, beautiful treasure, then surely, why would we not want to share it? Um, maybe, though, maybe some of us believe or don't really believe that the gospel is that good news. Uh, maybe we're, that's the reason why we're a little bit timid about sharing the good news, because we haven't actually received in our heart. We, we, we've still got doubts. We, we, maybe we think that there's another gospel that if I can just change it, then it'll be better. Maybe we lack that confidence. But the gospel is enough. I was, I was super encouraged uh, this, week we, um, this week we did week two of introducing Jesus, uh, a series where you can explore uh, the truth, uh, the claims of Jesus, what it means for us as well, who he is. And um, I was encouraged by two of you. You, you asked me, uh, hey, Mike, is it too late to bring a friend? And I said, yeah, it's week two. Sorry, next time, buddy. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I said, of course, of course. And they're like, yeah, it'd be really helpful for our friends, our respective friends to come along. We think they would, you know, they're not Christian. It'd be really helpful if they came along. They, they need to hear the gospel. They came along, got to meet them. I hope I trust they had a good night. Uh, and I'm praying that, that God joined with me in prayer. Um, thank you for those who are praying for introducing Jesus. I'm praying that uh, for these and others who are exploring faith, that their blindfolds, would be taken off. They behold the beauty of this treasure. Last week we looked at the beauty of this treasure. Ultimately, it is a higher purpose than even loving others. Ultimately, it's for God's glory. And we see that echoed again in verse 15. Paul says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. 
to the glory of God. Yeah, we share the gospel for others' sake, but ultimately so that the world would be in thanksgiving to the glory of God. John Piper says the reason why we do mission, cross-cultural, overseas mission, is because worship doesn't exist there. We evangelize. We be on mission because God is not being worshipped. And so the grace, the glory of God, it's, it's, it's received by more people to give God more glory. Let me wrap up just by these last couple of verses, verse 16 to 18. These words are both confronting and comforting. Paul says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we looked Not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is confronting because uh, Paul reminds us that we are all wasting away. We all have a terminal illness, also known as death. Our plastic bag, it's tearing our, our pot, it's cracking more and more. I like to think of myself as you know, a young, energetic dad, one that can you know, keep up the kids and throw them around and play a bit of rough and tumble. But last week, I was just carrying you know, little baby Harrison, not yet three months, and like, my shoulder like, kind of went. <laughs> All I was doing, I was just carrying a baby, and now I've just had this shoulder pain for the last week and a half. I had a reality check that I, too, am wasting away. And yet, of course, many of us, I know some of us in this room, uh, if not ourselves, those we dearly love, uh, are in... Awful situations, wrestling in looking at death face to face. Uh, just this, uh, this last week, uh, a friend from my old church, uh, Lindsay, she, she passed away. Uh, she had uh, neuro, uh, I'll get this right, neuroendocrine cancer. Um, she, uh, she had two girls, um, you know, roughly the same age as my daughters, wasting away. But that's all of us, really. Um, some of us, it happens sooner than we, we hope. Sometimes we might say we live a long and a good life, but ultimately we're all wasting away. But notice what's happening on the inside. God is at work in us, inwardly being renewed day by day. God is transforming us, those who are followers of Jesus, day by day, to one degree of glory to another, making us more and more like Jesus. Why this perspective of Paul, it's radical. He's able to describe his hardships. Remember his hardships? Harder life than probably most of us here. He describes all this this as light and momentary. Sounds crazy. Beaten up, shipwrecked, chucked in jail, light and momentary. Is Is he delusional? What's going on? No, actually, he's seeing the world clearly because compare, he's comparing his present circumstances to this eternal weight of glory. See, life on earth, it's this, this grain of sand compared to this boundless beach of eternity. It's not about kind of seeking this next spiritual high. And as I invite the band up, um, how do we, let's go back to the first question I asked. How do we keep going? For the next 20 to 30 years. How do we not lose heart? You know, life's 
It's more than just highs and lows all the time, though sometimes it feels like that. Life is mostly mundane, unimpressive moments. You know, there are a bunch of unexpected lows as well. But you know, it's things like being stuck in traffic on the way to work, having that meeting that's a little bit annoying. You know, bathing your kids, eating breakfast, mowing your lawn. There's just a lot of mundane things that happen in life, right? How do we keep going? Well, we need to remember and remind ourselves that the gospel, it's enough. That Jesus is Lord. It's having that eternal perspective where a world wants to preach to you a gospel of instant gratification. It's about savoring and sharing in this treasure. And it's about doing that together as a church, spurring each other on until Jesus returns or calls us home. Let's stand and let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do praise you for this treasure, this treasure of the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, I pray that we would see more clearly this incredible work that you have done in our lives, that we would savour it, that we would share it. Lord, we praise you by your mercy and kindness that we are even able to gather here this morning. Lord, help us as a church to keep going, to celebrate together the highs, the joys of this life, but also to be with each other, to spur each other on and to grow through the hardships, the times when we see so clearly that we are wasting away. And Lord, also in the mundane kind of medium moments, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the eternal perspective, to remind us of the eternal weight of glory that you have in store for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.